0: It's Cardboard Time, episode number 69, and I'm your host, Arwen Kafke. On today's episode, we're gonna have reviews of Cosmoctopus and Santa Monica, and a very special interview with Nick Ricketts, who is the curator of the Strong Museum of Play in Rochester. Now, let me talk a little bit about my recent trip to Rochester. Uh, Visiting the Strong Museum was amazing. This place you have to go to if you're in the Rochester area, if you're in the Western New York area, or even if it's a little bit of a drive or a flight for you. This place is incredible, and I can't wait to bring this interview with Nick to you. It's just amazing. Uh, Also, I got the chance to visit Millennium Games and what a cool store that was i was very impressed with the size of the store i believe that at the very least it is the biggest flgs in north america if not the world not quite sure where the delineation is there but what a incredible experience i got to hang out with my friend cameron we went over we perused the sections for quite a while Uh, And their selection is absolutely huge and very friendly, great staff, uh, very uh, knowledgeable as well. So um, very good visit uh, back to Rochester and got to see my parents at the same time, which was also cool. Uh, We also did finally get to play that game of Monopoly that I've been talking about for so long. I didn't want to talk about it on this episode. I am saving that for an upcoming episode. Uh, but we will be talking about my experience playing by the rules of actual Monopoly. Uh, so, a lot of content coming up here. Let's talk about the Shelf of Shame. It is at 153, it is up by one. Uh, four games acquired, three from Kickstarter, the AEG fit to print. Deep Dive and Point City Kickstarter came in. So a lot of games to go through. Um, I already did get Point City out to the table. The other two are in the wings waiting. I don't think I'll have to wait long for those. And a purchase, I did purchase Cosmoctopus. This was a purchase at Guard Tower in Columbus. Uh, We were down in Columbus kind of on a date day. Uh, Allie and I went down to Columbus and stopped at Guard Tower, a nice FLGS, um, you know, very friendly and um, glad that we stopped there a little bit out of the way, um, but a, a nice selection there as well. And then just today, an expansion came in, Find Muck for Cosmic Frog, and I absolutely cannot wait to get this out to the table. For those of you who have listened to the show for quite a while, Cosmic Frog is a fantastic game that I absolutely love, and um, I am beyond excited uh, to get an expansion of this game out to the table as well. At the very latest, I feel like uh, PAX Unplugged is going to be the longest I'm going to have to wait to get this out to the table, because I'm pretty sure there's some people that want to get this out as well. Shelf of Shame games played, I did get three games out to the table, the first being Summoner Wars, and I will talk about this on a later episode, um, but I do want to play a few more games first before I give um, my final opinion on it. Uh, Very interesting heads up uh, combat game uh, using cards and you're summoning cards out to a battlefield and moving them around and uh trying to defeat uh your enemy summoner um really cool tactical game really enjoyed it um but again want to get a a couple more games in first uh cosmoctopus again i did get that played i do want to talk about that on this episode and point city is another one that got out to the table and i do want to spend a little bit more time with um, I'm not quite sure what I think about it yet. I will say from my standpoint, it's not nearly as snappy as something like a point salad is, which is one of my favorite games to get out with a random group. Anybody can sit down and play point salad. This one I felt was a little bit more complex. It it stepped that up a little bit more, uh, but I do want to kind of take a little bit more time Get a couple more games in and try this one out a few more times before giving a final judgment on it. So let's go to Cosmoctopus. This was from 2023 from one to four players, plays in 60 to 90 minutes, designed by Henry Audubon. The art is by George Dostopolis and published by Paperfort and Lucky Duck. Cosmoctopus is an engine-building, tentacle-gathering board game for 1-4 to four devotees. Guide Cosmoctopus through the Inky Realm, a flexible configuration of tiles to gather resources and obtain powerful cards that represent relics, scripture, hallucinations, and constellations. Harness the power of these bizarre objects and experiences, craft potent card combinations, and be the first to gain 8 tentacles to win. Your turns are simple, the game's excitement and depth lie in working out how to best use an ever-powerful hand of cards. Unlike some other engine builders, you'll be straight into the fun, upgrading your engine from turn one. With variable setup, easy ways to alter difficulty, and optional solo and cooperative modes, Cosmoctopus offers a versatile tabletop experience, whatever your gaming tastes. So I I did pick this up at Guard Tower after hearing a lot about it from Gen Con. A lot of people came home with this one. Um, I was really drawn to the engine building aspects of it as well as the kind of aesthetic to it. It was a very cute uh, (laughs) kind of Cthulhu but not uh, game. And I I really heard a lot of comparisons to Splendor, which is a fantastic game in my opinion. Um, but, you know, just one of those games I've played a lot and, and looking for something more. So the solo mode on this is very easy to upkeep. It's very quick. It keeps the game moving. Uh, rounds are more down to that 30 minute mark as opposed to the 60 to 90 minute mark. Uh, which did attract me to the solo mode, getting a few games out. Um, the games were very close. Uh, I felt like I was trying to manage the uh, card market, which would then help, um, you know, my chances of being able to stave off uh, the uh, solo opponent from getting a bunch of points uh, because basically they gather resources until they can score points with them. And then, uh, you know, they're trying to race to eight tentacles as well. Um, So this was very, again, easy to upkeep, very easy to learn and uh, kept the game going. You weren't doing a huge amount of upkeep for that solo mode. This game has some outstanding color vision accommodations. Uh, You do have to uh, kind of combine the cards and the resources. Um, And the card icon shape is really what drives uh, the color vision accommodations in this game. Uh, So basically you have a card and the icon shows the shape of the picture that's on the card and in doing that uh the card also has the shape of that you know that icon as well so you're very easily able to see okay i whenever i play this i do this and you can very easily see the cards i give them a lot of credit with the production of this um that helped me out immensely because there's a lot of symbology and a lot of things that you do have to kind of go to that uh you know, card icon or the color, and this was very easy to see. So kudos to uh, Paper Fort and Lucky Duck for doing this. Um, very, very, very easy uh, to get this out to the table for me. Also, the Cosmic Octopus is a really fun miniature. Um, you know, I I'm kind of considering, you know, maybe taking a look at painting it, um, but I'm not quite sure yet. Um, the, the one negative that I will say is that the game did go a little bit long for what it was when you were playing it at full player count. So one person, two people, it can, you know, drive pretty quickly. You kind of get that experience that you're looking for. And for the weight of it, um, I feel like it, it played quickly enough, um, that I was fine with that. But when you were at full player count, when you were at your four players, it did tend to drag a little bit. Um, so as as far as my final judgment on this, I do think that this is going to be a good alternative for someone who wants something akin to Splendor, uh, with maybe a little bit more complexity in those cards and and um, you know having a little bit more variety than just the standard. You get a discount on this. Um, So I would recommend it for solo play and small player counts. Um, This is sticking around the shelves, but I would try this one before you buy it. If you do have a larger gaming group, you may have a harder time getting this out to the table because for the weight of it, I really do think, um, you know, it does drag a little bit. So try it before you buy it. See if you like it. Um, I happen to, especially for a lower player count and solo play, uh, this one's staying on the shelves. And that was Cosmoctopus. And the other game that I wanted to talk about today was Santa Monica. This played from two to four players, 35 to 40 minutes, designed by Josh Wood, art by Jeremy Wynn, and Josh Wood, published by AEG. In Santa Monica, you are trying to create the most appealing neighborhood in Southern California. Will you choose to create a calm, quiet beach focused on nature, a bustling beach full of tourists, or something in between to appeal to the locals? Each turn, you draft a feature card from the display to build up either your beach or your street. These features work together to score you victory points and can provide you with visitor meeples to score additional points with. The player with the most points at the end of the game wins. So I picked this one up from the AEG sale earlier this year since I didn't have it yet. I have most of AEG's offerings. Uh, it was very cheap. I think it was a little bit under $18 uh, to pick this up. So uh, I, I've i seen it on sales for about that price point and decided to, to finally get it. Uh, This was super quick to teach. Um, I will say that the iconography maybe could have been a little bit more intuitive in that manner, but I was playing this at the end of AmeriCon. Uh, We were just kind of looking for that last game that we could see. Let's get this out. Let's wind down. And Santa Monica seemed to be that. Um, I was playing it with Jordan and Allie and this was very quick to teach. It was very easy to grasp. And Allie picked it up in no time uh as well. So it it was really, really straightforward. I did absolutely love the artwork. Uh the aesthetic is super cute as well. I love the the color palette and the color scheme. Uh that whole pastel kind of, you know, Santa Monica vibe, that faded pastel kind of thing. Um you know, very, very cute. Um, the meeples as well, the cards that are laid out, um, basically you're creating a beach scape that's out in front of you. And the meeples taking place in these little activities like taking photos and, you know, doing volleyball and shopping and going out on the beach. Um, And the way that you put them into their slots, um, makes a really fun beach scape when you're done. You can take a picture and you can look at it and it looks like the meeples are doing those activities. It, it's really, really fun. Um, so I loved that artwork from an aesthetic uh, point of view. This game was fantastic and really hit that note. I do feel like I underestimated how thinky this game was given its weight. Um, looking at what I was doing, I kind of knew for the most part what my strategy was going to be, but I did have to be quick on my feet to not miss out on another opportunity somewhere else on my board. So I, I really did enjoy how thinky this was, but how simplistic the turn structure was. Uh, And those games do tend to resonate with my group a lot. Something that I can teach quickly, but gives me that satisfaction of being able to do some fun things and some smart things Uh, really does satisfy me quite a bit. And this fit right into that. Um big criticism that I have from this and apparently a lot of other people do as well is that the box is way too big for what it is this is a simple card game with some meeples I think this box could be a third of its size um I do know that there's certain box sizes that you want to kind of stick to uh to make your your uh consumers basically go in and have that feeling of satisfaction and they're getting this, you know, fully priced game and not. But I do feel like this box could have been smaller and it could have been a much smaller form uh, that it came in. Um, So that to me was a little bit annoying and a little bit unfortunate. But this was super quick to play. Uh, Once you know what you're doing, 35 to 40 minutes is absolutely accurate. Um, Before we knew it, we were scoring our points and we were done and had a great time Uh, talking to everybody at the table. They also really enjoyed themselves with this game. I feel in getting into my final thoughts, I do feel like this game is highly underrated. Um, I don't think that this game got a huge amount of attention and I would like to see it get a little bit more. Um, I would absolutely pick this up again if it goes on sale. I do not regret that kind of $20 price point is absolutely fair for this game. Again, it is cards. It is just meatballs, but it's a fun, straightforward game. You do have some replayability with your tiles, um you do have a front and back side that you can play with so your games are going to be a little bit different um you know they could have gone with a little bit more variability on some of these but um you know overall I thought that it did a really good job and and I got my money's worth for it it's a fun game very fun cute theme and some snappy gameplay Um, this was a absolute deal for me and it will be staying around on my shelves and I would absolutely love to see an expansion to this one. Um, you know, I, I know that maybe it didn't necessarily sell and it kind of, you know, fell into some of the other things that were selling at the time. Also, it was a 2020 release, so we all know what happened then, but uh, essentially, I would love to see an expansion. Uh, I know that there's a smaller expansion, but some more of those tiles, some more variability to this game would give it so much um, and give it a little bit more uh, leg to it. I, I think that um, you know this one uh, you should take a look at. Definitely don't overlook Santa Monica. And coming up next... I have an interview with Nick Ricketts, so stay tuned. On today's interview segment, we have a very special interview live from the National Museum of Play at the Strong in Rochester, New York. I have a lot of great memories in this town as I went to college here, Fast forward 20 years, and I've made my return to visit the area and have the absolute pleasure of seeing the amazing brand new exhibits and renovations that were recently debuted here. Here to discuss those and the tabletop collection with me is Nick Ricketts, the curator of the museum. Nick, welcome to Cardboard Time.
1: Oh, thank you, Arwen. It's great to be here.
0: Well... Why don't you tell me a little bit about how you got to this point where you're a curator at such an amazing place, an amazing museum. We just did a little tour at the archives, and it's grown so immensely since the last time that I was here.
1: Well, uh, I came to college in Rochester also, and I uh, did an internship at a museum on the recommendation of one of my teachers, and I loved it. I was hooked. I did another internship before I graduated and uh, started immediately working at the big art gallery here in town. Leaving that job a few years after uh, I came here doing more of a collections managing kind of job at first. Uh, These jobs were, computers have taken over a lot of that work now. Mm -hmm. But I was able to go to graduate school and keep my job for a, doing a leave of absence sort of a program. And I got a degree in museum studies. And immediately after that, after I graduated with a master's degree, uh, I was hired as the first curator of board games. Um, this would have been mid late 90s. Uh, there had not been a curator of that before, but the museum was changing its direction and focusing on play, and they knew that board games, table games, were an important part of that story. And so, um, along with some other collections that i had already kind of been overseeing, um, including a paper collection with photographs, and so board games being paper-based,
0: it was a pretty good fit. So why don't you uh, go a little bit more into depth of the history of the board game collection? You already mentioned that there was kind of a pivot of making sure that there were a lot of uh, table games because this is a museum of play. How did you start you know, the big curation process of the massive archives that you have here, which are, again, incredibly impressive?
1: <laughs> Well, I like to say some people are born to great collections and others, like me, have great collections thrust upon them. It kind of felt that way. We didn't have a massive board game collection when I took over. We had a good one that was developing and we were gradually uh, changing the focus again of our museum to concentrate on the history of play. And so I guess I began purchasing or accepting donations of games that helped to tell that story. Now we had no end date meaning I could get great historical games, but also contemporary games. So if a game and it's, this is still basically the way we operate. If a game is um, noteworthy, even upon its introduction and then, you know, a prize winner, for example, or something that uh, has stayed a bestseller for a long time, it's definitely something that we would consider we've been lucky to get huge donations from some game manufacturers or game collectors and that has surprised me because that's some of the ways that our archive of games has gotten so big
0: Yeah, and that's one of the things that we talked about was just the massive influx that you would get from certain designers or certain publishers and very indicative of the community, and and being supportive, and wanting to make sure that the history is preserved, um, I think is incredibly important. And again, you know, the fact that we we talked about Alan Moon downstairs donating a copy of every single one of his games, which is quite a, quite a few, um, you know, for him to go out and do that, and for others, you know, Alan was just an example of that, but for others to do that as well i think is really indicative of the type of community that that we deal with and you talked about the more modern board games i was looking around and there's you know copies of these these very old games um you know with a huge archival value and then there's also gloomhaven that's sitting there as well so it's really a, a huge breadth of games that you have here and it's it's extremely impressive um, why don't you tell us about some of the more unique entries in the collection? I certainly saw a ton of really, really cool stuff down there.
1: Oh, you know, I prepared some remarks and now they've completely gone out of my head. <laughs> um, a recent game that we got that's a really good example of a game that's been selling extremely well for years now um, is a game designed by elizabeth hargrave called wingspan and if you're a gamer you've probably heard of it you've probably played it um, based on birds Um, so uh, birder people bird watching people are also interested in that game but it's a a learning game it's an interesting kind of combination of games where you are learning about birds and also um, building this point engine. That's one recent run. Uh yeah, Gloomhaven, kind of similar, very good seller, expensive, popular game for a long period of time. And so that is definitely something that that we would want. As far as unique, we have um, Charles Darrow's round Monopoly prototype, formerly owned by um, Malcolm Forbes, was part of his collection and shown at Family Museum down in New York City, so that's pretty interesting. We also have the precursor to that, um, Elizabeth Maggie Phillips's Landlord's Game from 1906, her published version, and that sort of helps to tell the story of Monopoly, which is a pretty
0: important American game. And some people call the concept of women in the board game space kind of a novel concept. But look up the history of Monopoly sometime and you will see that it is not a novel concept whatsoever. And I thought that, you know, having the landlord's game here, it's it's a very rare uh, thing to come by, uh, especially so that definitely sticks out as one of the more unique uh, entries uh, that I saw. Um Speaking of companies donating games to you, uh, Mayfair actually donated,, uh, I think it was a single copy of everything from their line. And one of the stories that I saw on the website that you told was finding a prototype by somebody that you didn't know who this was you didn't know what the prototype was or anything but the museum's policy is to try to reunite somebody with their prototype if they have you know if you're able to find them uh, from a large collection and you found this person Uh, this person was very grateful and happened to give you a copy of his game uh, for the museum, and that's a little known game as Clank. Paul Denon also designed Dune Imperium, which is wildly successful uh, in the hobby. So I I found that like really incredible. Any other comments on that story? Any any fun interactions that you had with Paul uh, during that uh, that time period?
1: Well, what led us to it first was there was a, a note on it that had been written to one of the owners of Mayfair Games, I think, that said, um, please return to, oh, was his name? Or did I have to look at it? No, his name must have been on it. And I finally tracked him down, still working in the game industry um, and figured out, I think I just wrote his game company blindly, but the the message got to him relatively soon. And he said, wow, I can't believe that. Yes, I would love it, Um, you know, I'll pay shipping. Well, it was nothing to ship that little game prototype back to him. Mm-hmm. He said, um, I, and I'd like to send you a copy of our newest game, Clank, uh, which seems like a great game, too. And so that's what happened. I shipped it off, and pretty soon we got Clank.
0: Now, you contribute to a blog called Toy Tales. And one of the entries that you wrote uh, was about Sid Saxon very recently and you have a lot of Sid Saxon's old prototypes, um, you know, things that he had collected. Um, Can you go into Sid Saxon's life a little bit and, um, you know, some of his work? Well, Saxon was amazing. Um, By
1: training, he was a civil engineer working, I think on one of of the bridges in, in New York, he helped work on, but his love was board games and card games and games of any any type really even just a party game that you set up when your guests are arriving he authored books on games and he is a gamer's gamer people in the game industry many have heard of him many admire him many have his books he was a big game collector too his game collection was auctioned off after his death but certain things were saved all of his game prototypes that he had, as well as a few by other designers, because they had sent them to him for his review. He did game reviews for a while in, I think, Dragon Magazine, which Mm -hmm. was a TSR publication. He also knew so much about games that people had that much respect for him, that, you know, what do you think of this game? And he'd he'd be honest. So we got uh, hundreds of game prototypes uh, from him. Are, that had been his and he also kept a journal especially of his gaming life um, he and his wife bernice would game with their friends nearly every night he would record how much they enjoyed the game who was playing it who won how long it took things like that he recorded every person in the game industry that he ever met what their dealings were did they collaborate on a game and uh, all, all of that kind of thing. And then I guess later in life, because he wanted something else to do, he indexed his own diaries, which is amazing (laughs) for a librarian or an archivist to have to deal with. Actually, we're still in the process of transcribing those and it's a public, um, anyone can do it. You can um, get, get to it through our website. It's called the Sid Saxon portal and anyone is welcome to help transcribe his diaries.
0: I had to say the the first time that I learned about Sid Saxon was through his classic "Can't Stop." It's a very very basic push your luck game, um, and you're just basically rolling dice. You're moving counters on tracks. Sometimes they're traffic cones. Sometimes they're just little discs. But it is a fantastic little game. If you haven't heard of it by now, go online, go check it out. It is still in publication. And it's kind of indicative that sometimes, you know, the, the brand new hotness or the new games aren't necessarily the best. And there's still a lot that we have to learn from the classics. So I love the fact that you brought up that he was a civil engineer, because I know from my experiences, you know, things like indexing your own diaries and, <laughs> and that amount of detail they're they're so incredibly prevalent in engineers. You can see this kind of behavior over and over again and and a lot of the things um that we saw downstairs kind of track with that. You know, he's very, you know, focused on efficiency. One of the things was his storage. You want to tell everybody about how he stored some of those games. Oh, sure. Um in order to save space because st- space was at a premium.
1: Uh he lived in New York and then they moved to a- Uh, one of the suburbs, Queens, maybe Brooklyn. He threw away game boxes, saved the boards and stacked them all up and then um, put the implements in smaller pencil boxes and stacked them all up. So he was saving space that way. And um, we've since... Got some of those collections here and we store them similarly. Of course, we don't have the boxes, but they were part of Sid's collection. So they're pretty important. And it's a real variety of games too. He would buy things that this might play well or, you know, this has a mechanism that I'm not familiar with or less familiar with. Um, so they're very, it's very interesting to think about him and think about his game collecting because apparently his collection was huge and incomparable according to everybody that knew him well.
0: Which is something that we see a lot of today. One of the best things that you can do as a designer to learn about different mechanisms is just to play games. And I think we saw that there as well. So what other collections do you have here that you oversee? We have a large paper
1: documentary collection, which is things like uh, postcards, uh, photographs, and you can imagine how in the museum of play if we show a game if we can get a picture of people playing that it's great it's background you can blow it up you know make it a background for showing the game and its parts for example other paper material like um patents um we have a copy of elizabeth mcgee's patent for a landlord's game it's not the original but uh oh gee just about anything paper that you can think of that's a little bit of history and especially if it's related to play we would want it Um, i'm also curator of our small clothing collection which we have costumes which are um playful they might be related to games uh i know that we have um some world of warcraft costumes that were used when that game got into the um, world video game hall of fame which is also part of um the national museum of play also curator of art so we do get individual art related to games and toys and holidays um you'd be surprised sort of how much there is and uh, again it's probably my background that those collections um, came to me as well
0: so what is on your table right now what are you, are you playing anything anything good that we need to know about
1: well on my table for work is a game called titan from ooh, it's really early 1980 and it was at first an Avalon Hill game, and we're thinking about um, using it to um, demonstrate how um, those kinds of games, typically what you would think of as a war game, played with uh, tiny little square counters. In this case, they're not so tiny. Um, how they were played. It's a good-looking game, so it'll display well in the case, and it'll make a better example for explaining, you know, how to play basically a hex and counter game better name than war games. Um, myself, I'm playing a game called Barbarian Prince, mm-hmm. which did win a Charles S. Robert award when it was first introduced. It was designed by a man named Arnold Hendrick. And it's a solitaire game. You're helping this uh, prince complete his quest. And every game is different because of the way it's um, set up. I can see why it's a re- still really highly regarded game and a lot of and people out there would say, "Oh yeah, that's one of the best one of the best
0: solo games." I definitely have to check that out because I'm a huge solo gamer myself. I think you can print and play it. Oh, that's perfect. I'm gonna have to go back and and check that one out. Uh, any favorites that you have that we need to know about?
1: Oh wow. Well, I have a soft spot for gateway games like Ticket to Ride, of Love. course. I. I still love Ticket to Ride. I don't
0: know what everybody's. And as far as. Oh, people love it.
1: As far as um, themes, I love classical games. I like artwork, too. I'm always attracted to that.
0: A nice box art.
1: Totally. Yeah. Or game board. Some Mm -hmm. of those, oh, man, some of the early ones, too, are amazing. You go way far back, like the late 19th century, the so-called golden age of board games. Like McLaughlin Brothers out of New York made
0: amazing chromolithograph board games. Yes. Interesting. I have never seen those. I will show you some. I definitely cannot wait. Anything else that you want to talk about today? No, I think maybe...
1: uh, I did a count, a really rough count of our board game collection just earlier today because I knew you were coming and It was over 30,000.
0: Oh, my goodness. So,
1: I mean, that would include card games, and Mm -hmm. that would also include jigsaw puzzles because we have a massive collection of those. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Well, um, most of them came from the American expert on jigsaw puzzles, and uh, she'd been collecting all her life. And so we got those, but we also... uh, get them. People have them. Um, or my uncle was making these back during the Great Depression, and we saved them all. They're made of wood, the early ones, not cardboard. They're really fun to put together. And most recently, especially during the pandemic, Jigsaw puzzles saw their second great revival. It hasn't even slowed down as much as the first revival did. In 1935, nobody wanted a Jigsaw Puzzle. In '33. they were like, selling everywhere for a dime or they gave them away free if you bought something else. Mm-hmm. But, um, the pandemic really brought a lot of that back and in including a lot of crafts people who make their own
0: wooden jigsaw puzzles now. That's incredible. Yeah. Like I, I did not know about that at you, all.
1: You can find them easily online. Yeah. Although there's also a lot of Chinese, uh, not as much fun to put mm. together cause they're all basically machine, it cut and these people are
0: cutting with lasers but they're still it's
1: doing it by hand
0: yeah yeah, yeah and there's there's just something about that handmade quality that mm-hmm. you you can't touch with a machine It's something about a wood puzzle too the way the pieces sort of thwack into place mm-hmm. you know? it's very it's just very satisfying it totally is So the last uh, question I'm going to ask you is the museum went through a huge renovation and a huge upgrade uh, very recently and just uh, opened a lot of those updates to the public. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Sure. Um, They're focused on video games and video game history. And uh, it's basically uh, two different large exhibits, one that is expressly focused on video game history um, and it's it's amazing. There's a sort of a timeline where you can really trace all the history from the very first inklings of, oh, here's a computer, this new thing. Oh, let's play a game with it. And that's kind of you know how it started. The World Video Hall of Fame is rehoused now in that first exhibit. The second exhibit called Level Up is uh, a whole new idea where you are given a wristband as you enter and you become sort of your own avatar. And every game you play, your wristband registers you at first, and then you're keeping track of your score as you go. So it's completely interactive, it's immersive, I would say. And um, that's been very popular too, yeah. They're huge too, and um, sort of really state of the art.
0: I think the world's largest Donkey Kong machine (laughs) is here as well.
1: Mm it's yeah um we had a lot of cooperation from nintendo of america on that one and it's uh yeah it's great it's amazing because it's kind of suspended in air i'll just leave that out there
0: well because people have to come see that yeah right and you're gonna suspend people's attention (laughs) suspending so that they have to (laughs) so that they have to come here and see it for themselves right well, this has been so incredibly awesome, Nick, and, and I appreciate your time today. How can people get a hold of you? And then how can people get a hold of the museum if they want to come check this out? Well, the easiest way is to visit um, our website, uh,
1: museumofplay.org. It's pretty easy. Um, if you look up Strong Museum, you'll find it too. There are places on the website where you can um, get a hold of a curator eventually, if you need to. Um, You can also search our collections. Not everything is on there. It has to have been photographed too, but many of our um, scholars do that as a starting place. These are the games that I would like to see. We have a, a scholarship program for fellowships and those, they search our collections that way.
0: Oh, very cool. Well, I know that I'm going to be coming back. Uh, we had our interview today, but it's not nearly enough time to come and see this incredible museum. Uh, so if you are in the Rochester area or you're just looking for a fun little trip, come check out the Strong Museum of Play here in Rochester, New York. Nick, again, thank you so much for taking the time with me today.
1: It is my great pleasure, Arwin. It was great meeting you
0: so i just wanted to reiterate at the end of this a huge heartfelt thanks to the strong museum of play for letting me visit and check out the archives this is a truly fantastic facility nick and the strong team are doing a wonderful job of preserving board game history and making sure that we have it accessible for years to come and their collection is absolutely incredible and i will have uh, some looks behind the scenes uh, coming up soon on my social media. I will be doing a couple of videos uh, that I filmed while I was there. And it's it's absolutely incredible. It's absolutely stunning. It's just rows and rows and rows of these very rare, very historic games. Um, you know, all humidity controlled, all temperature controlled. Everything is archived meticulously. And um, it's it's all browsable through their website. So you can go, you can look. Anything that Nick has cataloged and documented is there in the website. Um, so if you're looking for something different to do, like I said at the top of the show, if you're in the Western New York area, if you're in the Rochester area, absolutely head to the Strong Museum of Play and see this museum. Um, you know, I, I know that... Uh, Board gamers kind of take a backseat to video games. And, you know, in this circumstance, it's strong. There is a focus on video games, but board games are right beside it. And I can see some of the kids that were playing the video games also have something catch their eye and they were looking at the tabletop games. So they might be looking at something and say, hey, you know, I maybe I'd like to try this. Um, it, it's just that kind of vibe. Um, I will absolutely be spending uh, some more time there. I'm already planning a return trip to head back up to Rochester, get another garbage plate and, uh, you know, get over to the Strong Museum because it is a wonderful, wonderful time. So I think that's going to do it for us today. If you want to know more information about Cardboard Time, you can check out our website at CardboardTime.com. Our Instagram and Twitter is at Cardboard underscore Time, and Blue Sky is at Cardboard Time, uh, no underscore. And that is where I'm spending most of my time these days, over at Blue Sky. And, you know... If you uh, shoot me an email at cardboardtime at gmail.com with any questions, suggestions, or ideas for discussion topics and need a code to get into Blue Sky, I might just have a couple laying around. So as always, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you around the table in two weeks for another episode of Cardboard Time.